Hello City of Champions. Missing you guys all a ton. I'm out here in Hong Kong in the last leg of the trip. Uh, it's been a massive success, one that I hope will open some serious international channels in the future. My guest this week is leadership expert Lauren Rubis. Lauren's currently the chief evangelist of ATB Financial, and don't worry, he explains what that is. Uh, Lauren's also the author of The Character Triangle, a how-to manual on building character, having an impact, and inspiring others. Lauren's an incredibly likable, charismatic guy. Uh, meeting him was really interesting for me, uh, given that he taught my mom back in junior high, so it was pretty amazing to get a glimpse back in time at what she was like. I know you guys will all enjoy my conversation with the warm and engaging Lauren Rubis. going to jump in because as you know yep. as a fellow podcaster the intros are always a little a lo- always a little dicey and i do a nice little intro to sure. say welcome the guest yeah so we're live now uh to give the audience a little context sitting here with lauren rubis uh former junior high teacher of my mom <laughs> and my aunt back in what years were those oh 1971 to 75 shane so. i i heard you were uh the fan favorite back in the day well you know when you come out of um University and you've got hair down to your shoulders <laughs> and you're barely six, seven years older than your students and you play football for the university and, you know, you're just uh, the youngest staff member and you teach phys ed and sex education, which is ridiculous. <laughs> you, you, uh, you, by your nature, and you coach all the teams, mm-hmm. it's a setup to... Uh, right to be in a position to be liked by those kids. Right, that's good. What kind of impact did those guys have on you at your point in life? Like, at 21, you're really young, right? Like, yeah. you don't quite have the full perspective of life to know that you have an impact on people and people have an impact on you. So, uh, this is going to sound like a shameless plug, and I don't mean it, but I, I did write a book yeah. uh, called The Character Triangle. And the first chapter of the book, the very first story, mm-hmm. are about those kids. Mm-hmm. So, in answer to your question, they set me up in some ways for the for the rest of my life. The um, and when I got to St. Nicholas, it was a school in Northeast Edmonton. Um, they literally didn't have hardly any uniforms. I couldn't even put together uh, a matching set more than four or five uniforms, basketball uniforms, or you know, they didn't have any kind of structured uh, sports program. They hadn't won anything for years. And when I left. Um, four years later, because of the uh, faculty and the kids and the parents, the, comp- the school completely reinvented itself. Mm-hmm. And these kids came from uh, together collectively to create a, a, a true cultural transformation of St. Nicholas. And that has essentially set the tone for the rest of my life. And the day I left, they were as like a... a kind of like, you know how the last day of school, there were kids come together in awards. Yeah, everyone's happy, every, right? jumping around, so paper on, planes are flying. You know, I'm on the stage. The stage is filled with kids, and uh, I'm leaving. And so all my team captains come up to me, and uh, the principal allows this to happen. I'm on the stage and with other people, with other faculty. But anyway, they're bringing me trophies and gifts and things to say thank you, and I'm so humbled by it. And then, for some unknown reason, these kids all got up on their chairs. And your mom was one of them. We <laughs> talked about that because I had a chance to meet them again, your mom and others, some 40 years later. Yeah. And they gave me this, uh, they gave us, 
not me. I, I you know, I wasn't mature enough to fully appreciate that it wasn't about me. Right. It was about us collectively. Mm-hmm. It was what we did, how we took that school from a last place, underperforming, not very proud, not even great acad- academically, or to to a fierce competitive city championship winning, wonderful increase in academics, unbelievable spirit, and we did it together. And we were, and those kids were applauding that experience. Right. So, were you the architect of that, or were you along for the ride, or was it a little push pull both ways? Well, it would. On all these places where I've been part of a transformation, I've been instrumental, but and I've had some architectural role. I think leadership is design, really. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be uh, immodest and not accurate to say that it was all about me. But I definitely had a influence in a role. And sometimes you're given a, uh, like just one example in there. Uh, I decided to, uh, at that time, 1971, to, to break cohesion and more of a team building kind of an atmosphere to school. I broke up all the kids from grade four to grade nine into three houses, Musqua for Bear, Kihu yeah. for Hawk, and Cake Cake for Eagle. Yeah. And we kind of named it after the uh, the indigenous community. And every kid would wear these red, white, or blue t-shirts and everybody belonged to that house. And so, so you know, that had a huge kind of, even though it was a small thing, had a huge impact the way how kids felt about being part of something. Mm-hmm. Well, that little design initiative when I got here to ATB and became the chief people officer, one of the first things I did is I collected all the leaders, yeah. you know, 900 people into a group called Club Catalyst. Well, that was an old idea, that principle that kind of evolved to a different state. So, you know, yeah, we did it together. Where did you go after the school? What, what was the next step in your journey? Because you've had a lot of stops from, from then to where you are now at ATB. Yeah. Um, so, you know, without getting into, uh, you know, half a day discussion, yeah. sort of what, what were the pit stops and what did you pick up from each of those? Okay, so the so, so I realized how damn hard I was working for, frankly, not very much money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, if you're really committed to, to teaching and uh, coaching, you get up at 7 and you get home at 7.30 or right. 8 o'clock. And mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But you don't get paid a hell of a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking, God, I'm really interested in this whole transformation thing. And so I went and got to the University of Oregon and went and got my graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, my wife did the same. And so we did that, came back, and um, I, I started in business. And, um, and I started getting involved with organizations and uh, really get involved with sort of organization strategy work. Mm-hmm. Had a business here for 10 years. And then in 1988, the same day Gretzky got traded, there's a hockey theme in this, <laughs> uh, I was recruited to go to the U.S. for one year and a one-year sabbatical. At least that's the way I set it up. Right. And my wife and three children, 11, 9, and 2, we left to the U.S. and it took us 25 years to get back. <laughs> and in that time... You didn't bring enough clothes. I guess not, for sure. And Although I, it is warmer. Yeah, you know what? And it was interesting because in that time, I got in the cellular business when I didn't even know what the hell cellular was. I ended up working for the chairman of a Fortune 50 company. It was one with seven direct reports to it. More luck than brains. Right. Went to work for the LA Kings Hockey Club. Was the chief operating officer of a NASDAQ traded company that had to transform from a catalog company into a web-based B2B company mm-hmm. and ended up being the CEO of a technology company, international technology company. I blew up a voiceover IP company that was supposed to 
be the world's greatest kind of Skype before Skype, and it right. was too early and blew it all up. Yeah, and you know, lost millions of dollars, and you know, and then ended up here at ATB. So I've had winners and losers. What caused that VoIP company to blow up? We uh, uh, were pretty early. Yeah, and um, and so we had our first round of funding of uh, ten million bucks, and then we had met most of our covenants. And we were trying to sign our second term sheet for the next 15 million. We had over 100 people. We had a, uh, this incredible kind of a, of an infrastructure, best engineers, blah, 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 blah. And the dot-com crash hit, mm -hmm. and we couldn't get the second term sheet. We right. just, we ran out, and we ran out of cash, and and the, the uh, lead VC by, uh, wasn't able to participate in the second round. Mm -hmm and lead it and so we just couldn't we just ran out of, and it was just a very humbling experience mm -hmm. i i've listened to a few episodes here the culture cast yeah. podcast about leadership yeah. and culture cultural transformation and i quite enjoy it um, Thank you. one thing you said in it that stuck out to me is is how important failure is so long as you have the framework of a safety net so that you can rebound from it right so what did some of those failures that you experienced specifically that void company what did, what did you learn from those and and how did you take that forward into your next opportunities to make sure, okay, was this an extraneous thing that I couldn't control? Could I have done something different? So I, I really have this um, belief in that, that in self-accountability. So I think the first question to ask yourself when something doesn't go right is what and how I might have done something differently about mm -hmm. it. And I genuinely think if you kind of have an honest conversation with yourself, and it's hard to do, but if you can, it's such a tremendous foundation to go forward with more confidence. Mm -hmm. So I, I think failure is the route to confidence, actually. Yep, and, I agree. And I think you, and I think you have to just um, get out there and uh, just get more swings at bat. Mm -hmm. And the more you do, and you know, all of a sudden you're going to find that you are going to have winners and losers. And the more authentic you are to just be open about the fact that you're going to have some, you're going to screw up. Things are not always going to go right, but you're out there, and experience is everything. You just, as long as you learn from it. A lot of people want to repeat the same damn thing right. for 15 years. Definition well, that's of not insanity, experience, right? right? Or, yeah, or, you know, you'll see people, I see people, they do the same job for 15 years, and say, say how much experience do you have? Mm -hmm. No, 15, no. You have one year experience 15 times over. Yeah. How do, you, how do you differentiate? Because everyone wants something different, right? Some yeah. people are more, more than happy to, or at least seemingly more than happy to stay in one position, one job for the rest of their lives. Is that a lack, is that really unhappiness and just a lack of motivation? Or are they truly happy staying stagnant? You, you know, I don't want to be judgmental about it because we're all so different. Mm -hmm. I do have a belief though we're verbs. I really believe that. I think we, I, I think, I have a belief mm -hmm. that we, uh, are most um, inspired and we contribute the most when we're moving. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I do, for example, when we bring all our new hires and, and the CEO of the company and I meet every new hire, we spend a full day with them at ATB. And the, when they come together collectively, there's typically about 70 or 80 of them once a month, and they get settled in the first 15 minutes, first thing we ask them to do is to move. <laughs> and you know, there's grumbling yeah. and there's... And, and my comment to him is that get used to it because if you're going to be at ATB and you want to be successful, you're going to have to keep moving. You have to understand that change is oxygen for us. Right. And then I believe in this uh, Carol Dweck from Stanford's view of having a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. I think you need to, to have this view of moving forward. Mm -hmm. So growth mindset moving forward. So I'm 
uh, a deep believer in consuming um, what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Living in the present, but consuming and going forward in the best possible way. Okay, that all makes sense. Now, you mentioned your book, and I was going to wait a little bit longer to get into it, but let's talk about it now. Yeah. What, uh, what was the f- inception of that? When, when were you first had the thought that I could write a book? I should write a book. And two, I'm writing a book. Oh, I don't know. It feels so kind of um, almost, um, you know, it's arrogant almost to think that you can and then you've got, some, and there's so much noise out there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who's interested in the book I have to write? Um, however, I was curious around uh, the people that I ran to, regardless of their stage in life, they seemed to have an impact. Mm-hmm. They inspired others and they just got things done. And so uh, I started to reflect on that. What attributes did I see about these people? Right. Regardless of their stage in life, whether they were a superstar athlete Mm -hmm. like Marc Messier or they were a person who uh, had a more, quote, ordinary role in the world and found a way, though, to make, to do something with purpose. And what did they do? How did they think? Mm -hmm. And then I was also curious around what we could learn from the dying and from the elderly. Right. And what lessons out of there. And they kind of came together and, you know, my wife was sort of said, well, why don't you quit talking about it and do it? <laughs> and challenged she, she just challenged me. And I was in Hawaii at that time. And she said, here, and she gave me a, a notepad and a thing and said, get going. I don't want to leave here uh, before you have the frame of this thing done. And that's what started it. It took me uh, uh, a little over a year to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wrote, I wrote it for others. However, the real... In the real spirit of it was for mostly for me. Right. And that makes sense because you need one proxy. You need a specific audience in mind. You can't make something for everyone because it's going to end up being for nobody. Yeah, and I didn't try and write it from, you know, I, I, I know there were over 5,000 copies floating around out there and I didn't write it for, uh, which is not much, mm-hmm. right? You'd have to hit lightning in a bottle, you know, you have to get on, you almost have to, you know, uh, you know, you, you, an Oprah-like kind of a right. kind of an opportunity to get through all the noise, and it really didn't matter that much. I was I was just, but I've had lots of people that of those five thousand have read and said there was that it had a big impact for them. Right. What year did that come out? Uh, about nine, I think nineteen. I was say two thousand and sorry, two thousand and twelve. So, how many of these prototype people, the the common thread people, did you use? Did you have specific examples, or was it more just a sort of nebulous? You know, I've discovered this over the years from from a, a number of people. Yeah, and I didn't write it. I put. I kind of did an affinity thing. Mm-hmm. I, the the emerging kind of uh, concepts were they're were highly self accountable. Mm-hmm. No excuses. No they, right? They they these people all seem to have this view around this absolute. Uh, they were less worried about holding anybody else accountable. They yeah. held themselves accountable. Right. And they were not victims for anything. So you could go from, we talked about Gary McPherson, who was, a, you know, led, you know, was a quadriplegic and led the, you know, the Alberta Paralympic Association for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. The guy could have every excuse in the world, but he had impact. But he was a very self-accountable. It wasn't right. like, poor me, and I've got all these limitations. Right. And then the other thing is that, these people were enormously respectful. I saw this this thing about they were just great listeners, mm-hmm. and they had the ability to go and appreciate the value in others. Mm-hmm. And they um, they had, they were self accountable, and they they had the ability to be empathetic and compassionate and 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 respect anybody uh, regardless of their role in life. Mm-hmm. And the third thing was, that, and when I wrote this in two thousand and twelve, was quite a new concept. Is that I found them abundant. Mm-hmm. I found that they saw. 
the world always is expanding and opening up more, as opposed to making the world a win-lose game about everything a zero-sum game. Right. And if they strove to be successful and created something, they never felt like they needed to take anything away from anybody. They right. always thought about giving more. And, you know, I saw it in athletics, great athletes that would find someone who would be coming up as rookies that would essentially take their job sometime. Mm -hmm. The most impactful ones shared and were coaches to these kids coming up underneath them. Right. They, instead of being protective and, mm -hmm. you know, treating them with disrespect, but they were abundant. Mm -hmm. So I saw this combination of those three things, and that was the essence of the book. One part of accountability that I really like, it's this book I've read, um, and you might have heard of it, called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Have you ever heard of that I one? know Jocko Willink. I've yeah. never read his book. Oh, it's phenomenal. I know my son is like a maniac. About <laughs> He's been on Joe Rogan lots. Yeah. And He's your ultimate ultimate special operations guy, right? Yeah, he. So I started really reading again after after university and all that. I started reading about a year and a half ago. Yeah, and um, that was the first book out of I think thirty plus now that I've read in the last year and a half, and that was still to this day the most impactful one in my life. And the basic premise is essentially that everything in your life you're responsible for, whether directly or indirectly, whether down the chain of management or up the chain of management. Yeah, and we all think we're accountable <coughs> until you th read his book and then you go, oh, jeez, right? Well, like until <laughs> you catch yourself and it's just so easy to blame things on other people. Like, you know, you're, you're late for something, for example. And instead of, you pick someone up along the way and instead of saying, you know, oh, they, were, they weren't ready, um, they weren't ready in time, I waited for five minutes and then we were late to whatever we we're going to, you say, well, no, I didn't manage them or I didn't prepare for that. I didn't tell them to get ready 10 minutes early and build in that fight. It's my fault for not building in that buffer zone. Yeah, you know, I um, had a note from someone the other day that I, uh, who worked for me about 20 some years ago. And uh, when I introduced this concept of self-accountability to, before I'd written the book actually, to mm -hmm. this company, and she wrote me a note and said, thank you for that because it's changed my life. Because I now used to think about, I was good at holding other people accountable, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really good at holding myself accountable. And like self-accountable people, the very first question they ask, what can I do about that? What could have I done about that? Not what you should have done about yeah. it or somebody else done about it or poor me. Yeah. You're, and that late example is a, a perfect example. And it's a... It's, 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 to me, it's a necessary condition to really advance yourself to your fullest potential. I've, I've had a lot of really great mentors when it comes to leadership over the years, and, and a common thread that I've noticed is every success, the congratulations is deferred to other people, and right. every problem is taken on accountable, my fault. Anything that, that goes right, you're to, thank you, you did it. Anything that goes wrong, my fault. And I think the, I think the leaders that you really, that I like to work for, mm -hmm. Uh, and I expect that of myself, have that philosophy, is that we did it together, and they're happy to share the success with others, mm -hmm. but if things hit the fan, they step up and take accountability for it. As someone who, who kind of trains and fosters leadership and culture, how do you work under other leaders who might not necessarily be as effective as you think they could be or should be? So, um, you know, one of the, uh, when I, everything I've done meaningful, or I've done it because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Every stupid thing that I've done, and I've done my fair share of them, it's because it becomes more about me. Right. And um, so when I can take the other person out of the equation a little bit in a sense of whether they're giving me recognition or 
you know, and, I, and everybody I've worked for hasn't always met my definition of exactly the right people that I'd like to work for. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I think the, uh, the important thing is to ask yourself, how might you contribute? How might you contribute to the greater good, the higher purpose? Mm -hmm. uh, and if the other person you work for, you know, is blaming or is, uh, or doesn't want to share the credit, I think you navigate your way through it. But I think if it ends up becoming a matter of they're right, they're, you're right and they're wrong, mm -hmm. I think it takes you to the, to the wrong place. So yeah. I think that's the way you have to navigate through it. There's, a, there's an interesting term for that kind of operation. It's called the canvas effect or the canvas strategy, if you heard of that no. one. It's essentially that you, no matter what position you're in, you work and you don't take the credit for it. Same reason that Benjamin Franklin published all his work when he was younger under an alias. And all this incredible stuff came out, and Bill Belichick was the same thing when he was coming up in the league. He would, you know, as a video analyst, he would pass all the best info to the coaches, and they would take credit, and they would take credit. But it allows you to develop all the skills, and you defer enough that you become so useful to the people you serve that you have to be promoted. You know, the the counterintuitive maybe aspect of that uh, that effect, as you were talking about it, is that. The world comes out to show up and give you lots of credit. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to. And, and on the other hand, I think if it sees you out there trying to bring all the attention to yourself, it has a way to also, uh, fate has a way of kind of, you know, def deflecting it as well. So, I mean, uh, I mean, we're seeing lots of examples of it down south right now. I mean, when you get when you hear the president stand up and say, boy, I'm the most intelligent person in the world, <laughs> and, and you go, you know, really <laughs> you know but 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 people that really make a contribution to others and they really care about others and they focus about other people's success mm -hmm. people know it and you get yeah. lots of credit for it yeah the cream rises to the top i yeah. i don't know if it was the rock who initially said it or if he quoted someone but when you're good at something you tell other people but when you're great they tell you that's so true and uh, organizations are like that too you know if you go out there and advertise the hell around how great you are mm -hmm then you got to convince an awful lot of people with a lot of advertisement. But yeah. if you're great, yeah. if you're a cult brand, yeah. your customers are out there just telling everybody how fantastic you are. Thousand true fans, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and you know you see that all the time. That um, And that's, and I think there's a metaphor there about each of us. Mm -hmm. But that's hard sometimes because, you know, we're human beings too. And, you know, I was in a conference one time and someone said, who here doesn't like, who here likes recognition? And everybody put their hand up. And, you know, his question was that, why the hell we, you know, is it so hard for us to give it to other Did people? Did you put your hand up? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I you know, I'd, I'd be disingenuous if I told you that I didn't, I, you know, people tell me lots of times and, and uh, you know, I, I appreciate it. What, what, I, what it, I don't try and do, though, is to have that make my, make it my, the reason I'm doing something. Right. You're not doing it for the congratulations. You're doing it because you genuinely enjoy the process. Right. So speaking of enjoying the process, you've been blogging and podcasting for a number of years. Yeah. Culture, culture cast. Um, but you work with your son too on it. Yeah, with, on the blog, yeah. Really interesting. How did that come about? Where was the idea of you two? Well, I had been blogging for about uh, three years, um, uh, twice a week. And um, this whole discussion about the millennial was com the millennial oh, yeah, com yeah. conversation. He's a millennial. Yeah. How old is he? Uh, he's 32. Okay. He's at the top edge of the millennial. He's right. at the very edge. Oh, right? see, I thought I was at the top edge at 29, but it's I good think to, it goes it's up good to, to 32. I think it goes that. I think he's yeah. the last guy, so he's at the very edge. He's not the totally entitled one, though, because he would still remember dial-up. Oh, yeah. That's the threshold. Yeah. That yeah. I, if you don't remember dial-up, <laughs> then you're entitled. Yeah. 
and so um, and then he was living in Los Angeles and he and he's in uh, much like you he's in the um, his internet uh, he was in the creation content creation mm -hmm. he's an internet journalist and, and a writer and um, and um, I missed him mm -hmm. and um, and I was was talked to him and just said look you know would you mind helping me publish my I'd, I'd publish my blogs and edit them and and he started doing that. And then after, I said, "Would you mind just sharing a millennial view?" Yeah. And um, and our readers now, I think, I think a lot of them skip down to the bottom and go to his, <laughs> to his view. And I've told him, yeah. I've, I've told him, "Hey, when I'm talking about abundance, I'm not talking about you, buddy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know actually, it's been such a wonderful thing for our relationship because we talk about all those concepts, but it's not a, it's it's like we're talking it together as two mm -hmm. creators. Where where it's not me lecturing him about something or him having to listen to his dad. Mm. It's us in content creation and listening together. Mm. And gosh, I, 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 you know, we took a break over the summer and I miss it. I won't do it again. Yeah. We do it twice a week and we both love it. Is it always him replying to your comments? It or is. have you ever flipped the switch? No, but I think we're getting to the point where that ought to happen. Freshen it up? I think it could. Yeah. I think it should. And um, I think we're going in that direction. You and know? the ones I've read, you guys seem to be pretty much in agreement. Can you uh, can you ever think of one that you guys were diametrically opposed to? You know, we've had some fierce conversations about it, and I've always told him that I wouldn't edit his stuff. That yeah. he could, um, um, like, uh, you know, he's he's. Um, I guess the ones where, um, you know, he's very much about when I talk about women's issues or I may talk about it, he's very resistant to any kind of labeling of any kind and okay. he's kind of pushed back against that. I mean, yeah. I've encouraged him to as well. Yeah. And um, and I think um, he sometimes thinks I get too academic and I don't tell enough personal stories. He's a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And he's going, for God's sake, you know, you know, get off the quotes and talk yeah. about the real you. So yeah. there's some of that. Right? It's a generational thing though, right? Like growing up with social media we're we're used to exposing more parts of our lives yeah I mean my dad's the same way everyone's parents I know are the same way there's not many people in that demographic who are ultra comfortable with sharing those stories it's not been an, a natural part of yeah you know digitally native more open social media is such a different I mean that is really I mean you know the idea of the reference points are so different around just exposing our lives to each other, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think it is generational. And a lot of people are afraid of the egotistical, like, well, no one's interested in me, right? Not realizing that it's not, an, it's not you're sharing it because people have to know. It's just because it's a nice, you know, connection of human tissue. It's just people getting to know that we're all going through the same experiences. We all struggle. Like you said, we're not all angels, right? No, we and, make mistakes. And, you know, boomers, I think, I mean, you don't, uh, I mean, there was a, I think there was a veneer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you kind of look at old television shows. It was, you know, it was Picture a little bit. Picture perfect. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, that's, you know, don't let everybody know, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, everybody knows dad's an alcoholic, but no one's supposed to know or, exactly. you know, and and there's a story underneath behind these curtains that were there. And, yeah, Stafford and, family. Yeah, and it's all that, all that's been, you're right, there's a, there is a generational component to it. Yeah. Well, I know you got to go, so I want to be respectful of your time. You're but I, re I really appreciate that. We have to do a follow up to this. I'd love to, and I, you know, thanks for going down the journey and reaching out. Um, I, I appreciate it. I think I mentioned to you how much I enjoyed uh, 
teaching your mom some 40 years ago. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, and it's incredible. Uh, Everything comes full circle. It does, and here you are. And um, and good luck on your on your journey. Good Thank you. I really, China. I really appreciate that, Lauren. Thanks. Look forward to the next one, Shane. All right, take care. Thanks, bye. As always, guys, thanks so much for listening. Can't wait to see you all in a couple days. Looking forward to get back to the City of Champions. See you then.